Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother and co-host, Gaseous Snake, Dagan Moriarty. <laughs> Carl, what happened? Carl. Carl! A snake A snake Snake Solid snake Ah, oh, it's the best. I wish we could just have the Japanese voice acting. It's the, it really is the best. I hope you are all, all are well. I'm flubbing a lot today. I'm not cutting it out. I told you, I'm not cutting Flubber. it out. Flubber. Remember so that movie? Gonna be, yes, I do. I never saw the original one. Wait, that's Robin Williams? Yeah, but there was an original one, wasn't there? Wasn't that a remake? Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. Oh. But I never, I didn't know that until more recently. And it's really not relevant to this particular <laughs> How podcast. How did we get on Flubber? <laughs> we are geniuses. It took us 30 seconds to get sequiturs. It took us 30 seconds to get <laughs> off track here on this episode. I hope you guys are all well. Welcome back to Knockback. Knockback, of course, is a nostalgia and retro themed and fueled podcast that I do with my brother Dagan. We post every week. You can get the show a week early and ad free by supporting us on patreon.com slash Collins last stand. It really helps us out and lets us continue to do the show. So thank you to the thousands of you that support us on Patreon and submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, get the show early, communicate with each other on the community board, etc. We have something really positive and fun going on over there on Patreon. And we appreciate you very much. Now, Dagan, we are here in Philadelphia, the suburbs of Philadelphia yes. at your home, yes, in sir. your home studio, Leonardo, as it's named. <laughs> and correct. today's episode is about Metal Gear Solid, just Metal Gear Solid, the video game Metal Gear Solid, not Metal Gear Solid 2 and onward, right. not the MSX slash Famicom, any, you know, NES Metal Gear games, just Metal Gear Solid. And this is a seminal game and one that the audience is super excited that we're going to cover here on Knockback because for many people, it's one of their favorite games of all time. And certainly a seminal game, one of the most important games, I think, of all time. And Happens to have just turned 20, which is pretty remarkable and makes me feel exceptionally old because I remember <laughs> it's ironic for me to say, I know some people, you're not old, you're only 34, but I remember getting this game. I was 14 years old. I got it for Christmas that year in 1998. So we're recording this around Christmas in 2018 and time has certainly flown a great deal. It but really has. This game is fantastic. And, you know, this list, this wave, wave six, we're in of knockback recordings. We record between eight and 10 at a time. These are Dagan's episodes that he chose. And so I'm excited to talk to you Dave, about Metal Gear today, Metal Gear Solid and get into it because I know I know you have a great deal of respect for this game. And I love it. Oh, it's so important. I think that's the word, right? Respect. Absolutely. I think a lot of people respect this game. You went back and played. I haven't played Metal Gear Solid in years. You went back and played it recently and you were playing it this morning or this afternoon when I, I was, was yeah. compiling some notes and letters from the audience. And while it doesn't hold up, I don't think from a gameplay perspective, I don't know that anyone would really argue that design mantras have just changed over the last 20 years, especially with tank controls and kind of just the way Snake feels. Certainly everything else about the game is not only a love letter to how deep games can be, but I actually think kind of a turning point for video games and what it represented. I think that 
they really set the bar very high for story-driven games that would come after. Kind of the analog games that would come out around that time as well or kind of try to copy it in some way, whether it's Siphon Filter or something else. So, exactly. Right. Perfect. Perfect pull. So Metal Gear Solid came out in Japan in September of 1998, and it came out in North America a little after my birthday in 1998 in October. In 1998, for my birthday, I got Tales of Destiny, of course, so I was more excited oh. about that than Metal Gear. I think Metal... And you got me Mega Man Legends for my birthday that year. I remember that. So that was a pretty good year for gaming for me. And then it came out in Europe in February of 1999, and it was a PlayStation 1 game. It did come to PC in 2000, and I think you can play the PlayStation Classic on... PS3, I don't know if it's compatible with Vita. I think there might be some problems there. And it was one of those PlayStation 1 games that was more than one disc. It was two discs. Two discs. Not necessarily uncommon. That might be surprising to some of our younger audience members, but Final Fantasy VII was three discs. That's right. Not super unusual. Of course, this was helmed by director and designer and writer Hideo Kojima, who's still famous today and very much still going today. And he's working on a Sony exclusive game under the Kojima Productions moniker called Death Stranding that we assume will come out in 2020 or so. So we're pretty excited about that. But Dagan, what made you want to put Metal Gear Solid on this list? Because we always try to put a game or two on there. Absolutely. Every time we kind of pitch lists to each other. And I was I wasn't surprised, but I was kind of surprised because we had just done a Konami game from this era. We did Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which came out the year before. And I was surprised that you went back to the Konami. Well, I'm not disappointed. Yeah. OK, good, good. It's better than Metal Gear Survive or some one of these newer <laughs> games. You know, for me, Kyle, it was such an emblematic game for me of something that was just, as a lot of us already know, one of the most innovative and inventive video games ever created for me. And for its time, it was absolutely unparalleled. Just as far as what this game was doing and the new grounds it was breaking, just breathtaking. And I'm really excited also because... Some of you may already know, and Colin certainly knows, I'm a big Hideo Kojima fan, and it gives us an opportunity to talk about him, who's a creator that I'm quite smitten with in a way of his creative approach and his philosophy is something that I really am interested in exploring. I think he's really a unique mind, and we'll get much more into that. But this game was, for me, one of, and also this game, I should also say, a big part of Metal Gear Solid for me, tactical espionage action Metal Gear Solid, is the fact there's an event in this game specifically, overall all-encompassing, very inventive and innovative game, but there's a specific event in this game that's maybe, for me, the most memorable sort of moment that I could remember in my gaming experience. All the way from starting from Atari 2600 to now, you know, with the Switch and the PlayStation 4. This game is one of the most memorable for me and something that happens in it that we'll get to is just, it's got to be talked about. And I was so excited to talk about it. And Hideo Kojima and everything that happened with him and Konami that maybe we'll get into and sort of his relevance today is just as strong with, you know, as we said, developing this new game, Death Stranding, that, you know, we're purporting will be for the PlayStation 5, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that they're running it on PS4. They claim it's running on PS4, I believe them. But based on the timeline of the how long he usually takes to make games yeah. when they started developing it. I can't imagine that this game will only be a PS4 game, but maybe it will. Maybe it'll be a very last so- swan song for the console. But we're only by the time we're recording this, I would assume by the time we get to December 2020, the new console will be out. So right. we don't have that much time, really. Right. To right. Consider right. it. But maybe, no, exactly. maybe it is a PS4 game. I don't know. I don't believe it, but we'll see. So it's interesting that this guy is still, you know, like all the cre- you know, all the video game creators that are still on the tips of our tongue, like Shigeru Miyamoto. Hideo Kojima is still quite relevant today. And I think 
the hopefulness of this new title and Death Stranding. I know I'm particularly very, I, there's a lot of hype behind it, obviously, but I'm very excited about it and just what he's capable of as a th- creative mind and as a thinker and as a creative person, someone who creates, someone who really considers his art form to be video games. You know, and that that's what really specifically excites me. And this is really where this is not where his career started. Obviously, we go back to the MSX games, like you said, and the Metal Gear game on NES and the Famicom and his sort of trajectory. He's a little older. Hideo Kojima is in his 50s now, mid 50s. I think so. He looks great for his age. He does, man. He looks younger than me. And I'm 20. I know you just turned 27. I just turned 27. All right. I'm 28. It was just your birthday, by the way. So happy birthday to you. you Happy belated birthday. I agree with you. There's something appealing about Kojima that's actually not appealing in the same way that Miyamoto is appealing or some of these other creators, even creators that I really associate with my own love of video games like Koji Igarashi or, you know, some others. So to me, you know, obviously Keiji Inafune, there's something different about him because he has almost an aura about him and this respect, I think, in the industry. And I think that what Konami did to him in 2015 is only strengthening that or has only strengthened definitely that feeling about him, even though I think Metal Gear Solid five from the Phantom Pain, from my perspective, is not a Metal Gear game. And I didn't enjoy it at all. I thought the first hour was awesome, you know, when it was a Metal Gear game. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. Game. Yeah, I don't want to. I just I don't care much for I will do another episode about that game in the future, I'm sure. But yeah, he's 55 years old. And for me, I'm enamored with Metal Gear Solid still to this day and like to think about it because I just feel like it was incredibly influential. I think it's one of those 10 games or so that you can point out that changed things. I think you can point to a game like Space Invaders. I think you can point to a game like Super Mario Brothers. I think you can point to a game like Metal Gear Solid. You know, I think you point to a game like Half-Life. Wolfenstein. These are games, this this pantheon of games that might not be some of the best games of all time, although I think Metal Gear Solid is certainly in the conversation for its time of one of the best games that you could possibly have played on PlayStation for sure. But it's not only about that. It's about what the influence was on everything that came after it and kind of this idea that without certain games, we might have gotten to the same destination. We would have just gotten there in a more circuitous way. And I don't know if it would have worked out the same way. I always bring up like Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers was not the first side scroller. It wasn't Pitfall and other games did it first. But do you really want to side scroll like Pitfall or do you want to side scroll like Super Mario Brothers? Well, it's this very similar thing here with third person action. The camera angle is a little unique in this game. It's got like more of a top down perspective, which is strange. But it just it pioneered a lot that we take for granted, I think, today. And I think what it pioneered the most is voice acting and writing that you can have a movie like script. In fact, they intentionally treat it like it's a movie, you know, with the credit sequences and all that kind of stuff. And you really can tell a story in a video game. And it can be a story that's not just told in text like we had in Squaresoft RPGs. And it can't just be man saves the world kind of thing. This game takes place in under a day in terms of the in-game stuff. And. It's really the first. Ex- I don't want to say it's the first example of that. That's not true. It's really one of the most prominent examples of that, though. And I think that's why it's important. Yeah. So Metal Gear Solid. When did you first play this game? Did you play it? Were we did we play it? I don't, this is what I don't remember. I remember playing it after I got it for Christmas. Okay. Over like a two day period. I was obsessed with it. But did you play it before that? I did. I played it when it came out. I was really thinking back now. I always like to put a game in context. First of all, as far as when I reflect on it as far as wondering how I bookended that game, what came right before and what became right after, just to help put it in context as far as my memories and the way it impacted me. And now this game came out in North America in October of 98. Was it October? Let me look at the exact date. It was October 21st, 1998. 
Okay, right, exactly. So right before this game, I was playing Parasite Eve, and right after this game, I was playing Brave Friends of Musashi. That doesn't speak to when those games came out. I just had remembered that. You know, I think the release dates were probably pretty much in order-ish. But that's what I, I was playing Parasite Eve before this game. And then right after this game, I was playing Brave Fencer. Those two games specifically didn't really help me to put that in context. It just helped me put it in historical context as far as what I was playing around that time. There's such different genres of games that doesn't really help me reflect on Metal Gear. But I remember getting it. This was one of the games I got near release because I was living up in Connecticut at the time. I had just moved there from Philly. And I was uh, working my first job. I just had just literally within weeks started my first job in animation up there in Connecticut and was playing this game by myself at night. I didn't really know a lot of people up there yet. So it was like me and the PlayStation. And I was really, really enjoying it. And I was really struck by how I was struck really by by a few things. And I remember this was one of the games I was very excited about in reading about it in magazines and they would show some of the development art and some of the illustration and being struck, you know, often they sort of pull at my heartstrings through the character design. Oftentimes I remember going through the same thing with final fantasy seven. It's like, I have to play the game. Look how cool those characters look. And I remember seeing, I don't know if they had a picture in there of a few of the different enemies like Vulcan Raven and stuff like that. And just seeing how diverse the cast of enemies was and how how striking they were and Vulcan Raven carrying that huge Gatling gun that was like taken from a F-16 or something. Just the dynamic character design was kind of initially drawing me. And then when I got the game, I think it was a lot of the, those things with the, you know, as, as we'll talk about with being covert and sneaking and not being aggressive and actually having to use strategy to avoid enemies and using communicating with each other, getting hints and advice through, you know, from your allies and having allies in a game. That was odd. There's a system set up for people to help you. And can you trust them? There was so many layers to it. You know, there were so many more layers to it than just a straight action game or a fighting game or even an RPG. This was something really different, especially if you, you know, if you look at it, if you really examine it in a historical context, we had never really played anything like this before. You know, using the codec, it was a lot of fun and it, it drew me in. I was very surprised to go back and remember because I hadn't played it in a while before I wanted to do the show and going back and exploring the game that it was so short because I was one of those guys, Kyle, and I think you're the same way. I was one of those guys, especially back in this era in video gaming and in, in my younger years where I would really savor a game. I would go so slow. I would explore every option. I would try to unlock every locked door, you know, look, explore for every treasure chest, whatever it was. I had to like really, really go slow and savor it. So I don't, I'd never, I was really surprised to find out you could beat this game in two hours because that's just not, not the way I play games like this. But that, so that was very striking to me and really how small it is, but it didn't feel that way to me as a, as a younger guy in 1998. It felt big and it felt exciting because of all the new stuff that I was bringing to the table. No, definitely. And I think that what's exciting about it is that it's an evolution of a game that we were familiar with from the 80s. Like you said, Metal Gear, which came out in 1987, was originally an MSX game. MSX is an MSX2 game, really. It's in kind of a PC engine sort or not a PC engine. That's something different. It's a PC console hybrid sort of thing where people were playing games in Japan, basically. And Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake came out in 1990 on MSX2 only in Japan. We didn't get it in the West until 2006. I think 
it was attached to Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, if I remember correctly. I think it was an unlockable in that game, but we hadn't gotten it before. And what's interesting is that this game is a sequel to that game. This was originally called Metal Gear 3, and they ended up calling it Metal Gear Solid. And I was reading some interesting anecdotes that they were calling it that for all these various reasons that the game was in 3D and that somehow made it solid. Yes, I read about that. All that kind of stuff, which is interesting. We had a, a Metal Gear sequel. So the original Metal Gear was ported to NES. That's the one we're really familiar with in the West. And we had a sequel that was called Snake's Revenge that was released on NES in 1990 that was never released in Japan. So it was another one of those Super Mario USA kind of situations. Oh, I never realized it wasn't. And Kojima yeah. had nothing to do with that No, game. Kojima had nothing to do with it. And I was reading it today. It still has never been released. It never had a Japanese localization. They didn't have that game. I never knew that. Because they were also not... That was made natively for NES, but the Metal Gear games, the first two, the real two, were not natively made for NES. They were ported later by Konami, obviously. So we have this interesting situation where when development of Metal Gear Solid began in 1995... They were going to call it Metal Gear 3, and they changed the name of it, obviously. And it was originally going to be for 3DO, which was a, an obscure Panasonic. It's not really obscure, but it was a poorly selling, couple million selling Panasonic console from the early to mid-90s. And they had made Police Knots for it, which is another franchise that Kojima... Kojima's really known for a few things. He's known for Metal Gear primarily, but he's also known for like that series Boktai. He's known for Zone of the Enders. He's known for Police Knots and a few other things. And so... Snatcher. Snatcher, of course which is a classic game. People consider that one of his classic games as well. And so they were originally going to make Metal Gear 3 for the 3DO following the release of Police Knots. Meryl, obviously, who or Meryl, actually, who is in Metal Gear Solid, was actually in Police Knots as a character. Did you ever get to play Police Knots? I never played that game. No, it never was. I don't think it was ever localized here. It was on, you know, 3DO, and then I think they ported it to Saturn and PS1, but they never localized it okay. as far as I know. So, no, I've never played it. And for people that don't know, Police Knots is kind of like an adventure game, I think. I don't think it's an action game. I think it's an adventure game. I think it is, yeah. So, yeah, no Western release for that game. But anyway, 3DO came out in 93. They had started development after Police Knots of Metal Gear Solid, what would become Metal Gear Solid in 95. They segued to PS1 when 3DO started the tank. And Konami obviously had this propensity to, to support these like kind of smaller consoles. So that really does say a lot about 3DO. And again, Kojima was the director. Kojima wrote it with a guy named Tomokazu Fukushima. And the artist is Yoji Shinkawa, who is pretty famous and has been Kojima's artist throughout basically his entire career and is working as the lead artist on Death Stranding. So, so cool. it's cool that they've stuck together as they founded Kojima Productions. And the timelines are a little interesting, too, because and the storyline, I guess we really should get in the story. Absolutely. And Dagan and I were talking about this before because I was reading the synopsis of it. I know what the game's about primarily. I mean, I think we all do. Yeah. But in reading like the very deep synopsis, like beat by beat synopsis, I'm like, what is going on? I don't remember some of this. But the basic overarching theme of the game is that this renegade group of elite soldiers called Foxhound goes rogue. They work for the American government. And in 2005, so the game's released in 1998, but it takes place in 2005. It takes place on Shadow Moses Island, which is this place in Alaska, this fictional place in Alaska. And Foxhound goes rogue and their demands are simple. They want one billion dollars in U.S. currency and they want the body of a guy named Big Boss. And the reason that they want Big Boss's body is because he's genetically mutated in such a way that they hope they can siphon the genetic kind of materials from him in order to make their own elite super soldiers. And they've already been making these super soldiers with other kind of genetic splicing, but they think that they can do it better. So in order to extract that demand, this rogue, these rogue group of soldiers steal what is called Metal Gear Rex. Metal Gear 
in the Metal Gear series are these mech-like creations that are nuclear-armed creations. So very much a realization of that late Cold War fear that a lot of people had. And what's interesting about this, too, for me, is that the story goes way deeper, gets way more intriguing, and it really is the beginning of what we look at as Kojima's sort of zaniness, even, with the way he tells his story. But I know that you're a fan, Dagan, of sort of conspiratorial stuff. I am, too, of American government stuff, stuff to do with the CIA and all these secret black ops and stuff like that. Was that what was intriguing to you about it? Because honestly, when I was a kid, that wasn't what was intriguing to me about it. It was later on when I played Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, which is one of my favorite games, my favorite Metal Gear game. You were saying that. That I really got into that angle of it. So talk to me a little bit about the story and why that might intrigue you. Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think that was a big part of it. There was always sort of, even in the beginning, when you don't, you're not aware of the betrayals that are going to happen later. You know, first of all, I should say to you guys, too, I, I think, in all fairness, there's a statute of limitations on spoilers for games. This game, Definitely. like Colin was saying, this game's been around for 20 years. But if you're listening to this right now, this game is very story heavy. There's a lot of things that happen. There's a lot of twists and turns, and there's betrayals and double crossing and a lot of unexpected things that happen. If you just and and just in the spirit of not spoiling, also just everything else that makes this game great, from the gameplay to the mechanics, everything. Go play the game. This is a game as a as a video gamer that you need to to play in order to be you know in order to be able to talk video games. You need to be able to play this game and have some. This game will give you so much perspective. Go play this and then listen to our podcast. Definitely come back and listen, but go play this. I'll say that big spoiler alert. You don't want to have this game ruined for you. Part of the joy of this game is is the surprises that are going to happen in every way. So definitely go and play and then listen to us, you know, gush about it. But basically, Kyle, I think even in the beginning, before you're aware of everything that's going to happen and all of the, the twists and turns that the story is going to take, and it's very story heavy and there's a lot of exposition and so on and so forth. But there's sort of this vibe that you get even from the game that what are you seeing that you can trust? What can you not trust? Who can you trust? Who can you not trust? There's a, you know, as we said, there's a gamut of people available to you on your codec, which is like your communicator of, you know, sort of a slew of people who are in there helping you and advising you. And so there's always that vibe of your covert you're on a mission, you're on sort of a search and rescue, you're trying to rescue some hostages, you're trying to uncover if in fact these terrorists have nuclear strike capability. And then if they do, you're informed to, you know, you're you're instructed to take them out, basically, to do what you have to do to, in order to disable them. So you're on a very dangerous mission from the beginning, there's a lot of tension, and you're sneaking, and you're trying not to be seen, you're hiding in the shadows. So there's always, there's already that sort of that anxiety, that kind of cool anxiety that I don't remember ever playing a game like that before. Now, we talked about a little bit already. The first Metal Gear on NES slash Famicom was the same way. That was probably the very first game, at least that I remember, where it was like, go in and don't be seen. It's a lot harder if you're going to engage. You want to not engage as much as possible. You want to sort of stay, stay to the side and not be seen. You're on a covert mission to not be seen. You don't want to engage the enemies. You have limited ammo. You have limited resources. You're, it's not designed to engage. So that was one of the things that really sucked me in as a player. I could also see players at that time in the late 90s being turned off by that because it's not that instant gratification 
and that sort of, you know, alluring action that sucks you into a game that you could just play and enjoy. It's different. It's much different. It's much more thoughtful. But that's what sucked me in about the game. That's what I loved about it. And, you know, just the whole, I love the mechanic of the codec and being able to communicate with people on certain frequencies and certain people are at certain frequencies and certain characters help you with certain things as well. And we'll get into those characters. But I also love the mechanic of having the soliton radar, which I don't, which is something that sort of is like an overhead, like a little radar view up in the top corner of your screen. Like a HUD. Right, exactly. That shows you where your enemies are, the enemy guards as you're trying to infiltrate the space, and sort of shows you their line of vision, which you have to stay out of, and also not make a lot of noise, you know, down to the very small details, which we weren't used to in this game, like walking in puddles would alert the guards to your presence and stuff like that. All of those very clever mechanics that were so new was just, it sucked me right in. It was unbelievable for its time. It's hard to overstate that. Like when you look at this this game in the context of history and what it came out around and amongst, it was something unbelievable. You know, I think it holds up really well. Like Colin was saying, the, the, the gameplay is a little bit dicey as far as engaging and shooting and aiming the hand-to-hand combat is odd. It's not really built for that, although it exists in the game. Yeah, what do they call it? Clo- close, com- or Q- close quarter combat. Yeah, close quarter combat, right. So CQ, yeah, close quarter combat. Right, yeah. so that, that, but that's what initially sucked me in. I think those two things, if we just look at the codec, and we break, we'll break it down further, the codec and the Soliton radar, which are like, those two, mecha- just having those two things gave the game, besides having your inventory, you have to say also, you start off the game, you infiltrate this base with a scope and a pack of cigarettes. That's all you have. So you have to find everything you need. You know, before we forget to mention too, Colin mentioned it already a little bit. The game is so cinematic. It's really, everybody that knows Kojima knows that he's like this uh, frustrated movie director. And the game is presented like a movie and you start, you get briefed on your, again, spoiler alert, you get briefed on your way in to infiltrating this base by your boss, by the colonel. And when you get there and you literally take start taking control of the character, it's showing you the credits over your gameplay. That blew my mind in 1998. I was like, wow, it seemed it was so sophisticated. It's such a simple thing. If you really think about it, it's such a simple thing to say, okay, this video game, why can't a video game be like a movie? But Kojima was the first guy to do that. He was really one of the first guys to explore the medium in that way. And that's what one of the things for me that made it so exciting i still what i was playing it this morning again and i had just played it a few weeks ago and i was playing this morning again and that opening when you're playing with the opening credits going it's so i was just like it's it gives you chills it's like somebody thought of this you know now what about you what were your first because you were a lot younger so there's a generational divide what what were your first thoughts of the game when you played it well i remember being in playstation magazine psm which was like a bible to me when i was a kid and they were talking about it, and I was like, oh, Metal Gear, this is like an old NES game we used to have. And I don't, I never played Snake's Revenge, and we never again had no, access I never to that either. We never had met access to the real Metal Gear 2. So this was kind of an isolated thing, and I wasn't really that excited about it until the reviews started coming in. And obviously, we were on GameFAQs and reading things online and these early websites, and people were gushing over this game. And at the time, I was really immersed in role playing games pretty much exclusively. Like I said, nine out of 10 games that I'd played probably from. 1993 or 1994 to 2001 or 2002 were Japanese role playing games. And then the other one out of 10 were usually sports games and the occasional like platformer or side scroller. I was really, really immersed 
in the PlayStation ecosystem, especially into role playing games, because we just had so many of them. So this was a weird jump for me. But I made the leap. Dad got it for me for Christmas that year. And it was, again, like I said earlier, unlike anything I had ever seen before. And it's kind of comical when you look at a game like Red Dead Redemption 2 or something. And you're like, wow, this game looks really this game looks real. And there are moments in Red Dead Redemption, especially in the the vistas and the environments when you're looking at things where like this actually looks photorealistic. This isn't even a joke it's anymore. How far it's come. So I know it's ridiculous to say how real and how amazing that game looked, because when you look at it now, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, but it looked amazing for the time. It was an amazing looking game. Remember, we're only two years removed from Mario 64 and one year removed from Final Fantasy 7 at this time, which were games that were considered quite graphically pleasing. But when you look at them polygonally, don't hold up at all. Now, Metal Gear doesn't hold up, but it holds up better. And it was the Agreed. cinematic thing, I think, to Dagan with the voice acting. And that was the first game that I had ever really experienced. Now, voice acting wasn't new. There was voice acting in games in the 80s. But the extent of the voice acting, the reason why the game is so big on two discs has a lot to do with the voice acting, actually. Absolutely. And it's so intensive. There's nothing that isn't voice acted. And that's something that you see never. You know, usually you see in games, even like we'll use Castlevania as an example, a Konami game from the year before, a side scroll, brilliant game, a game that I think is better than Metal Gear Solid. But to me, I look at that and I'm like, OK, there's like some voice acting in some of these cutscenes. In the beginning with Richter and Dracula, Maria and Richter, whatever the case might be, or Maria and Alucard, whatever. But otherwise, it's boxes and or like greetings. Like when you go to the library, it's like, hello. And then, there's like and then it becomes text. In and that's game, what we were used to. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's still games like that today. And I think that's great. But this was a thing where it was like you had to listen. You had to pay attention. There was intrigue and story to be told here. And... I didn't go into it understanding that as a fan of American politics and as a fan of American history, even at that time when I was that nascent age of 14 years old, I was really into that. So when I started to realize what it was all about, not again, having any idea what the original Metal Gear was about at the time either. I just remember playing it. It was weird, bad spelling errors and localization in it. That's what we were known for or what we knew it for. So that was like what was fun to me about it was, again, what Dagan was saying was that cinematic nature to it where it was a game, I think. And we got letters from the audience that we can go into where it's a game that sucked other people in around you. And yeah, it's unfortunate that the control, you know, conventions have changed over the last 20 years. I guess it's actually quite fortunate that that's happened. But in the, <laughs> in the age of being able to ubiquitously control your Y and X axis and movement kind of just makes sense on two sticks and all that kind of stuff, Metal Gear was a different sort of game. And it, it, it's still memorable for that reason. But again, I would, I would stress that it's not memorable necessarily for its beat to beat gameplay. It's memorable for like what Dagan was saying for what you can do in gameplay. Like Dagan was bringing up the noise that you make. Well, you can also use the noise to your, to your advantage. You can make noise intentionally. You can knock on walls and like run away and like draw people towards you and strangle them, steal things from them. You can knock them out and not kill them. You know, there's all sorts of weird and different ways to play the game. And I think that that's like what's most exciting about it to me. As you guys know, or I hope you know, on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, if you support us over there at a certain level, you can submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show. And I let you guys know the topics early, and then you submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. We have like almost two dozen for Metal Gear Solid. Nice. We'll see how many we can get through. Sweet. Michael Cu uh, Michael Cuieri, I want to say. I think I'm probably saying that wrong, wrote into us. Toddy had a similar question. We're going to go with Michael's, though. He said, hey, guys, I love the show, and you are both doing amazing work. Thank, Thank you. you, my friend. What's his last name begin with a Q? It's no, it's C-H-O-U-E-I-R-I. -I. A lot of vowels. That's Michael C. See what I did there? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. 
MGS2 is the first game I played that made me feel scared, excited, pumped in a way other games couldn't. We'll talk about Metal Gear Solid 2 another time. But he asked this, or he says this. My question is, do you think games matched Hideo Kojima's ambition? Thank you for all your amazing, the amazing work you do. So like Dagan was saying, and I think this is a good way to kind of continue our conversation. Like Dagan was saying, Kojima has a film quality to him and a frustrated director kind of quality to him. I think a lot of people know that. Very much so. And some people use it as an insult to him. I mean, a lot of people insult David Cage about that too, who of course is from Quantic Dream. He was another really talented kind of visionary and director in games, in my opinion, who made one of the best games of 2018 in Detroit. Mm. But for me, I look at it as having exceeded his ambition, because if you read, you know, unfortunately, there's very limited English language material about Metal Gear Solid when you compare it to a lot of other games. There's not, as Dagan and I were discussing before we started recording, there's just not a lot out there, there about there it. There really isn't. Surprising. Like, you, there's stuff to read, but you would think a game like this would have tomes of shit to say about it you know like yeah. books written about it absolutely and there's not there's nope. there's not that much out there but what kojima does say repeatedly is that he had no idea that this game was going to be big that he didn't care if it was big or not that he wasn't making it to be big and that they were su surprised when it was big they were authentically surprised because the original metal gears were not big no you know so that's kind of funny to me because it's a sequence of events where you become big or make something big without having intended it that's kind of the coolest part of the story to me is he made his game and it was pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's an authentic vision and he pulled it up. I mean, I will say somebody like I, I don't have the mind that that Kojima has, but I'm a creative person. I think somebody with his level of with his level of genius, I don't think he could ever live up to the expectations of what he wants. Like, for instance, I know he wanted to do that whole mechanic that I believe is in two. Colin and I discussed this. I've never played two. I skipped right to three. So I do have to go back and play Metal Gear Solid 2. But there was a mechanic in that, Kyle, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, where you could drag the bodies into hot... Like, if you took a took a guy out, you could take his body and hide it, right? Yeah, yeah you can put it in he lockers or He wanted to do like that, that in the first game. Right. But they could they didn't have the bandwidth to do that yet. So he had. it's not like he was putting every idea he had into the game. You know, somebody with this level of creativity and this level of... Uh, we'll talk about this later a little bit more. This level of out-of-the-box thinking sounds like a cliche, but it's not final product is never going to match the vision because of his level of his vision being so ornate and so strong and so you know so made up of a million different details he can never get all of his ideas into one game nobody with this level of genius could do that but the fact that he got this much into the game and made it work is very striking you know so that's uh that's really well said and i, I want to play too everybody talks very highly of it you do and I, of course i trust your opinion so two is definitely on the list. Yeah, friend. I would say I don't know how popular of an opinion it is. I know a lot of people are partial to three, four and five, depending on who you ask. I think being partial to five is insane, but that's up to you, of course. <laughs> I understand people like the game. I just don't. Know. It's very similar to our conversation about Breath of the Wild, where Metal Gear Solid five. I just don't understand how it's a Metal Gear game. That's that's like my question. It's I just, too different. It was all, the beginning sequence is awesome. When I first started playing, I'm like, this is great. You know, but I knew it opened up into an open world game, basically a repeatable open world game. I was like, yeah, that's not really what I want. Right. And the frustrating thing about Metal Gear Solid five to me was that you would like set up, you would try to take this compound and you would have it all perfectly set up and you would be playing it for like an hour, like slowly slinking around and like taking people out. And then the guy would see you and ruin the whole setup. It's like, ugh. You know, yeah, but that's tough. But anyway, for me, I look at this particular game as seminal for another reason. And I want to use this letter to kind of get into it. Okay. And Matthew Mandela wrote into us. Matthew Clarkson and Matt Karolowski also wrote in similar thoughts, but I wanted to use... All Matt's? Matt, yeah, I didn't even realize that. What? 
Matt Trifecta. That's unbelievable. He said, I remember playing Metal Gear Solid. I was first introduced through Silicon Knight's revamp of the game. We'll talk about that in a little while. I had seen reviews for it on what it must have been tech TV at the time. Being a huge James Bond fan and a love of military games, books, and video games, it seems like a perfect mesh of ridiculous over-the-top nonsense in a real enough world. I loved it. The series had me hooked from that point. It felt so different to me, and I honestly can't put my finger on what made it so different. What do you guys think set this game apart from the pack to make it the icon it is? The answer to this question, in my opinion, are the villains. And I think that that was what was always so most attractive. That, that's what Metal Gear Solid 5, first of all, didn't have. I think that's what Metal Gear Solid 4, even to an extent, didn't have. Metal Gear Solid 3 obviously had the the villains, you know, which I think was really cool. Right, of course. Yeah. Metal Gear Solid 2 has my favorite villain, who is Fat Man, who is the nuclear bomb expert who, like, roller skates around. It's like an amazing villain design. <laughs> he made his first nuclear bomb when he was, like, 12 or something in the lore. It's, like, really funny. But the villains in Metal Gear Solid, I had never seen a cast of characters like this before. And I really think that that, Dagan, is like what's most appealing about Metal Gear Solid is, yeah, the gameplay is solid, no pun intended for the time. <laughs> Sultan Radar, all these things are really cool. The whole heads up display and how they deal with that in the game is quite revolutionary. The stealth mechanics are revolutionary. There's a bunch that's cool. But what's really cool are the half dozen or so enemies that you encounter in the game that are in Foxhound in this enemy organization and how they're all unique. And I didn't want to spoil it before and I still won't because I want Dagan to talk about it. But it's the Psycho Mantis fight in particular that is considered arguably one of the greatest moments or the greatest moment in video game history. And I don't think that a lot of people would argue with that if they had played it because it is so out of the box and so incredibly crazy. It's actually a boss fight that would not even be possible to replicate today. And I'll talk about why that is in a little while. You wouldn't be able to do it today. That's right. You know, I never think about that way. You're absolutely right. And so talk to me a little bit about the we'll talk about the protagonist more in Solid Snake and all okay. of his people, too. But I want you to talk to me, Dagan, about Revolver Ocelot, Vulcan Raven, Psycho Mantis, Sniper Wolf, absolutely. Decoy Octopus. And obviously and we only we only see Decoy Octopus really for a little while. And of course, Liquid. So talk to me a little bit about the villains and why they're so attractive. It's such a cool menagerie of bosses. I it's I, I and I you know it's funny about this game. I had really forgotten about that aspect of it until I sort of you know sort of went in and started researching for the episode and went back and really took a hard look at this game again and remembered that I was so excited about it at the time. I had just forgotten. There's it's such a it's such a colorful collection of characters, not only from you know, like we already said a little bit earlier, from a character design standpoint, every character is unique and stands out on its own and everybody has their own element. You know, there's sort of the the guy that harkens back to the old west and is like really, you know, a great shot, but he's using an old weapon, almost like cowboy like in Revolver Ocelot. And then there's Sniper Wolf, who's you know, you have a woman who's a sharp, like extremely astute sharpshooter. And then you have you know Liquid Snake, who's the head of the thing. And then you have Vulcan Raven, who I talked about, who's a you know American Indian who carries around this giant Gatling gun that you find out was like basically stripped from an aircraft. But he's just immensely powerful and could hold this thing. It's huge. It's bigger than he is, and he's huge. It's such a cool and exciting collection of bosses. It's so it's so colorful and it's so fun. And that's really a fun thing about this game. Not to diverge from the characters, but I, I remember even at, during the time thinking, okay, this game is really cool and innovative. The one thing that bothered me was I thought it was a little cheesy and corny in the exposition and the dialogue and stuff. I didn't realize at the time, now approaching it as a much older guy, and I think I'm a little more sophisticated than I was in my early 20s, that it's not being cheesy and corny, it's being campy. 
and there's a difference, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of the genius that I didn't get. And having this sort of very, setting this very serious plot, you know, it's like a nuclear threat. These guys have to be stopped. You have to do it quickly. You know, they have insane demands and you're like coming out of retirement to go on this covert mission to stop these guys. It's really heavy, but you have this very cartoony set of characters you know, to kind of play against that. It's very, very fun. There's a lot of fun. It's not too heavy. And we'll get into some of the more, some more of the fun elements and some of the other fun side characters that kind of give this game some levity as well. And I think the boss characters, not only the cheesy dialogue and everything that's done very purposely, there's a lot of things that give this game levity. And this, these characters are one of those things. It's kind of the thing that pulls it from being, okay, you have this really sophisticated thing where you're on a stealth mission and you're not supposed to engage. And I'm sort of unlearning everything I learned like from the first 23 or 24 years of playing video games in this game. Okay, it's that's a little weird. But then the, the boss characters are pulling it right back into video game land. You know what I mean? But they do it so cleverly because so it's good. not only about the characters. Think about Revolver Ocelot, the guy you were talking about with the kind of the Western style, who, by the way, is a character in pretty much all the Metal Gear games. He's like the one guy that stays around, really other than the snakes and all that. And when you fight Revolver Ocelot, you fight him in a square-shaped room lined with explosives where you cannot shoot through it. With a hostage in the middle. Yeah, with a hostage tied up to C4 (laughs) in the middle of it. So the camp kind of continues in that way. We've talked about camp a lot, and I know that this is an amorphous kind of weird term for people. People don't know what camp really means, or some people don't identify it. I have a deep love for it. Like, I have a really deep... Because think about the things I love. I love G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe is super campy. I love Mega Man. Mega Man is super campy. Yeah. It's about taking the realistic and colliding it with the unreal. It's exactly why people like superheroes, but they don't realize that it's camp. Where do you stand on Bond films, Kyle? I don't really like Bond. I mean, it's fine. I liked the Pierce Brosnan ones because those are the ones I grew up with. Right, right, right. But I don't have this deep love for the Connery ones. right? Because they're camp. I would think of camp, you know, especially when you think of spy Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. So, and we should do one on Bond one day, maybe. I would have to really do my homework. That'd be fun. Me too. I'd have to do my homework. But that would be fun. But, you know, I have this kind of love for that. And I think that people just don't realize in modern society or in modernity that they like that too. They like superhero movies. They like Harry Potter. They like, these are campy things. These are not, Harry Potter is is about a wizard university. Or some, you know, like a wizard yeah, exactly. academy yeah. that is in England. It's a ridiculous, you know, but it doesn't seem ridiculous. That's kind of the essence of what camp is. And if it does seem ridiculous, it seems fitting for it to be ridiculous. And so it's awesome that Revolver Ocelot has these six shooters and, he's, and they show him really slickly, like spinning them around and stuff like that. But then you have to fight him in this fight where you have to corner him in this room like you can't shoot through it or you'd blow everyone up, you, including him. He's willing to fight you where you'll just kill everybody. <laughs> And I love that. So cool. And Cyborg Ninja, who we'll talk about in a minute, obviously cuts his hand off and that becomes its own kind of subplot in later Metal Gear games. Vulcan Raven is a similar thing where there's a tank driving around this thing. There is like there are mines everywhere and you're trying to fight him. The Sniper Wolf fight is really ingenious because you have to take meds while you're fighting her to keep your hands steady. So good. And if you like peek your head out without like she'll just blow your head off kind of, you know, the situation like that. And of course, I don't think we can beat around the bush anymore. Psycho Mantis is first of all the coolest villain in the game 
He's the most super... Him and Decoy Octopus are the only villains that I think are really truly supernatural. And Decoy Octopus, you don't really see Decoy Octopus. I think Decoy Octopus is Roy Campbell for most of the game. Yeah, like, is he actually... Is he, or, yeah, or is, is it Baker? Baker, I think. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, so there are two hostages that you're trying to free in the game that... It's really not that consequential at the end of the day. No, Anderson. Sorry, Kyle. He yeah, okay. A- so no, it's it's DARPA chief Donald Anderson and then an arms dealer named uh, Kenneth Baker. These guys are being held hostage by Foxhound. And Donald Anderson, you basically find out, was decoy octopus the entire time. So you know that there's this guy that can basically play other characters to such an extent that you he was indistinguishable the from the real despian. It's, it's awesome. It's so cool because you find that out only in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, you don't know. Which like, is you, so neat. You hear about Decoy Octopus a couple of times. But you don't even know. Like I remember playing through the, the game a couple of times, and being like, "Where is this villain?" Like I want to see who. This yeah, you're briefed on all the villains. Yeah. the first one minute of the game. Yeah, exactly. Right, the first couple of minutes, you're briefed on each villain that you're going to face, which is kind of cool. But Psycho Mantis is interesting because it plays a little bit. I don't know too deeply about where it goes later because he kind of is another ubiquitous character that appears. Like Psycho Mantis is a Metal Gear Solid Five, and oh, I didn't know that. Like I think it's him in the beginning. You see him like there's this awesome. Sh- I think I might have sent you a GIF of it on Twitter once, but where it's like he, you see him in the distance and he's like lifting himself oh, that up. Must and, be like, him. Yeah, it's 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 cool, but. The American government really was involved in the real world with psych- we, psychological warfare is not what it is. That's a real thing with like with trying to manipulate things with your mind. It's where like the Philadelphia experiment and all these conspiracies come from. Exactly. Yeah. Like where they were really the CIA and the military were really quite endeavoring to try to see, like, get any advantage over the Russians. Like, can we spy on them telepathically? Can we? have people in Washington spying on people in Moscow without even being there and all that kind of stuff. And Psycho Mantis kind of plays into that Cold War era stuff. And he's a psychic. And the boss, well, talk to me about the boss fight, Dig, because this is the moment you were talking about. Yeah. And Psycho Mantis's boss fight, I think is hands down the coolest boss fight in gaming history. Can't be replicated today because of the nature of controllers and uh, modern controllers. And I don't know if, if this is ever surpassed as a memorable moment in Gaming, I'll be astounded. So talk- I agree. So you do yeah. agree with me that this is probably the most single most memorable moment of a video game ever. Yeah, absolutely up there. I mean, in, in terms of certainly best boss fight ever and certainly one of the most memorable fights ever. And it's funny how imp- it's impossible. You can't you beat can't it, do it unless you do certain things in it, which is so cool. So talk to me. About right. It. So basically, Psycho Mantis is a character. I believe if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering correctly, he has Meryl. A character who's an ally of yours under his control. So you have to fight her first, I believe. But then basically what happens, to make a long story short, is it's a, he's a, a character with extreme psychic powers. And he's taunting you. And everything you try to do, you have, you know, you have a bevy of weapons at your disposal at this point. And you're trying to use guns and grenades and explosives. Everything you have, nothing works on this guy. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. And he's avoiding all your attacks. What happens is you have to, basically on the codec, I believe, you call up the colonel and he gives you the hint, or you would never know this. This is almost like, this almost has this resonance to me, Kyle, of the movie The Sixth Sense. Like, who could have possibly seen this coming? You know, even more so. So basically what you have to do, and this blew my mind. I can't tell you how this blew my mind as a, I was, a, you know, and it just so dramatic for me because I was in a new place for a couple of weeks. I was all by myself. I didn't have any friends there. I went to work. I came home. I was playing this game at night. It was late at night and this event happened. And I, so basically what happens is with Psycho Mantis is you actually have to physically take your controller out of the port, 
out of the controller port, the player one controller port, and plug it into the second controller port in order to fool him. Now he can't read your mind, and now you could you could attack him. That's out of the box thinking like I've never seen in my life. I remember being so struck by that, of being like, how somebody thought of this. That's unbelievable. And nobody thought of this up in gaming up until this point. You know, it was such a striking and almost moving experience for me that a video game could be that you know could could be that creative and that's what not to go on a big soapbox and you know veer off on a topic here but that's what drives me crazy about that whole argument that's really such a non-argument about is video games art that that's the craziest thing i've ever heard like that's one of the most creative things done in media ever you know, let alone just video games. So you have to beat this boss by physically taking your controller and plugging it into another port so he can't read your mind. That's insane. It's awesome, too, because no, first of all, it is insane. I remember when I, I don't remember how, but I had heard that, that that's what you had to do. Like I had known that maybe you told me or maybe someone told yeah, me we were talking about it. Yeah. And so I was prepared for that. And there's multiple moments. See, that fight is cool just for that. But there's other shit that happens in that fight. That's awesome. He turns your TV off. That's right. No, he's not really turning your TV off, but like, you know, like on old 90s and early aughts, you know, CRTs, there would be like that green thing in the in the corner that would say video one or video two, you know, very simple, you know, when we were using composite cables yeah. or S-video and he it would say Hideo one in the corner and like the Brilliant. TV would just the TV would just go off and then turn back on. And it looked legit. Yeah, it looked. And the other thing is, is that he would read your memory card, which I loved. Can you and it would read your Konami games that were on there. So he's like, I see that you like Castlevania. You like Azor Dreams. Like he would say things like that. And I was like, yeah, if you had Konami games yeah. on that memory card, he would say Psychomancer. So there's say. really three things in that fight that are all like if they were all any one of those things in there, like just the TV shutting off and then turning back on like he was messing with your like because the insinuation was that Psychomantis is messing with your electronics. Yeah. Like not just it's not about Snake anymore. It's about you. It almost it it. it, it it sucked you into the game. It It's not you as Snake and a proxy anymore. Now he's actually fucking with your shit. And it's incredible. It's I, I don't know how anyone could look at that fight and not be like, that is masterclass in gaming design. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, nothing is ever. And, and I think Kojima has gone on to say, like, he really wanted to, even if he could take it further and he wanted, he you know, he explored the idea of taking it further to turn the game off or turn the, you know, turn the, the, the place, not turn the PlayStation off, but turn it back to like S video or whatever. So you could, you know, access the TV channels and change your channels. Like he wanted, if there was a way to do that, he would have done that. But um, can you imagine how striking this was? Like, it's unbelievable that he did this. No, it's awesome. And there's something really unsettling about Psycho Mantis to begin with. Yeah. Like the whole lead up to that fight it's is creepy. really unsettling. And so that just brings a sort almost a horror element to the game. Yeah. Certainly it, it a thriller element. Definitely. It takes place in an environment that's so unlike the rest of the environments in the game too. You know, where you're in these warehouses and this cold storage and these dank and damp passages and it's very, you know, like a military base and then you're in this other, this whole other environment for that, just for that one fight. Yeah, it's like offices, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. an office. So it's, it's, it's great and it, you know, the color palette is so different. It's much warmer than the rest of the game. It's very disturbing. You know, it's so... Yeah, I, I mean... That really is a memorable moment. And it's one of those. The Sixth Sense was a good example. Like that's a moment, unfortunately, that a lot of people just cannot experience today. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's not playable on some hardware, I think, has a lot to do with that Psycho Mantis fight. 
so believable. Like I don't think I don't think the original Metal Gear Solid is playable on Vita for that reason. Oh, like, for that. But I could okay. be. But I could be wrong. You might be right about that. So there's something incredibly, incredibly, incredibly special about that because I think one of the things that is looked down, not looked down upon, but that people don't think about because you're talking about games as art. I hate that argument too. It's the it's worst. A, it's a totally absurd argument. It's a, that doesn't make any sense because Gene Siskel said it once or something. Yeah, who gives a sh- yeah. And I mean, it was Ebert on. actually. And who gives a fuck? Was it Ebert? Yeah. Oh man. You know, like you know, rest in peace. Of course, a a, a movie critic of renown, but. You know, stay in your fucking lane. Dude. <laughs> exactly. You don't know what you're talking well about. You have said, no idea but... what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, we look at games as this component and, it, and they are these components of parts that, you know, take multiple years to make. And people look at the overt things like the art, the animation, the music, you know, the voice acting, all of that kind of stuff, how the game runs, the engine it's on, the fidelity. One of the things that I think is not looked upon again, I don't want to say kindly that people just don't think about is that there's a whole vertical in gaming about design. It's design. Yeah. There are people that have no technical skill in video games. I know them. None. They might work in Maya or do like some weird things where they place things around maps and stuff, but they they don't write code and they don't draw. They design things. They design the sequences. They're the reasons why there's a monster closet in that corner and why there's a bin there so you can hide behind it and why there's a weapon drop there because they played this map over and over and over again and realized that is the way that they're trying to lead you somewhere. They're trying to show you something. That level of design cannot be underestimated. And it's amazing. And I've sat at GDC conferences before really nerdy things about, you know, one of the memorable ones for me is Resistance 3, which is one of my favorite PlayStation 3 games where they went into the it was an entire seminar about why they put enemies where they put them. It, that was all it was about. That's fascinating. They're like the Chimera are here because of this. The Chimera drop dropship appears there when this happens because of this. There's a power up there or a, like some energy there. That kind of stuff's awesome. And there's a really cool make. I actually wrote it down. If you guys Google or go on YouTube, rather search for Metal Gear Solid one, the digit behind the scenes making of in brackets. There's like a six minute video in Japanese. You won't, it's in terrible quality. You won't be able to read it. But one of the cool things in this video that I think is something that will be appealing to people is that one of the designers is sitting there with Legos. Yes. At his desk building a stage. The level design. Yeah. In Lego. Yep. I had never heard it. Have you ever heard of that happening before this game? No. It's unbelievable. Because, you know, you have to understand and Dagan understands this fundamentally that working in 3D spaces and when they began development in 1995 in games was still somewhat new. I mean, even if you were parallax scrolling or doing things that gave depth and stuff like that, games taking place in true 3D, not isometric or anything like that, but actual 3D spaces was very unusual. And they were learning how to do it, you know, and that was a way for them to tactilely do it and to make these environments. So when you begin this video, which is really fascinating, it's like there's a guy sitting there like putting the stage together with Legos and so that they can like transcribe it in a way to whatever early programs they were using. Yeah, it's amazing to make the game. And so thoughtful. So the level of design, obviously, is just absolutely through the roof, not only in that fight, but just in all of the fights. You know, again, the sniper wolf fight, the psycho or the uh, the revolver ocelot fight. All of that stuff is just it's really, really quite remarkable to me. Sean Mason wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, MGS was one of the first PlayStation 1 games I saw running. My four-year-old mind was blown. He was four. <laughs> By the fantastic graphics. That makes me feel so old. I, this show, I, like, I can't believe how old I'm getting. It's horrifying. I thought I was watching a movie. I'll never forget my dad telling me, don't tell your mother I'm letting you watch. When my father finally reached disc two, he let me stay up well past my bedtime to watch him finish the game. Wow. It's memories like that that have made me a lifelong gamer. 
How influential do you think Metal Gear Solid was to the success of the PlayStation? Love the show and keep up the fantastic work. Numerically, it wasn't that important to the PlayStation. PlayStation was out a while. Yeah, PS1 was out for three years by this point, more than that. And it sold about six million copies, which is very respectable on PS1, but it's not in the top 10 best-selling games on PlayStation 1, not even close. Oh, I didn't know that. And I don't think so. Yeah, it's like Gran Turismo and all the Crash Bandicoot games and all that mm, kind of stuff, sense. you know? Yeah, sure. So I don't know that it was that important to sales. Remember, PS1 ended up pushing, I think, 105 million units or so. Mm. Six million wow. gives it an attach rate of one in 20 or so. So not an incredibly influential game from sales, especially because PS1 already had runaway momentum at this point. What I think it was important for was giving PlayStation a lot of credibility as a serious gaming platform for serious gamers. You know, Dagan and I were talking on just a couple episodes ago, or depending on when this goes up, it could have just been last episode. I don't know yet. But we were talking about Sega and Nintendo in the SNES and Genesis era in the early and mid 90s and how this was a fight for like adulthood. This was a fight for like credibility and like the older kids and like what was cool and teens and all that. And I think that there was a similar fight going on between N64 and PS1 that was a little more understated. And I think N64 did have more adult content, to be fair. I don't think people give them credit for that, whether it's 007, whether it's Conker's Bad Fur Day, the Star Wars games. There was there was serious stuff on there. It, it wasn't like it was just a kiddie machine at all. Right. But PlayStation just outflanked it in this regard with games like Metal Gear that gave it a lot of adult credibility that I think was important to the longevity of the PlayStation brand. Because what was arguably the most important early PlayStation 2 game, but the sequel to Metal Gear Solid, which came out, you know, just a year and a half or so after the PS2 launched. You know, we didn't have that much leading up to Metal Gear Solid 2. That was, you know, Animusha, I think, was probably the first big game. But we and we had the bouncer and we had smugglers running all these games. But it was Metal Gear Solid 2 was an event. And I'll tell you right now, Metal Gear Solid 2 would not have been an event. You know, in the fall of 2001, had Metal Gear Solid not blown anyone away three years earlier. So that's why I think it's important to PlayStation's ecosystem. Well said. Well said. Definitely. Forrest Hunter wrote into us and said, Metal Gear Solid showed me what the future of entertainment was going to be. I rented the game on a snowy Friday in Connecticut. There Beat it go. on a Saturday and strong-armed my parents into allowing me to do enough chores to buy it on Sunday. I had never experienced anything like it before, and like the game was a revelation. Can you think of any other games that you feel like that about? I was going to ask you about that, especially even examining just the PlayStation. But a, a game is a revelation in general. You know what? There are other games. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could think of other games, but nothing in the, I don't think, for me, anything in this genre... Certainly not. As far as first person or third person shooters or anything like that. I mean, you think a game, you think of games like Chrono Trigger. You think of games like Final Fantasy VI. You think of games like Final Fantasy IV. Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII. I mean, I think that that's the same platform. Yeah, I think that the four games that on P on PS1 that I think really blew me away. Yeah, tell me which ones. Were in probably an order of release was Final Fantasy VII, Symphony of the Night, Final Fantasy Tactics. Oh, right. And then Metal Gear Solid. Okay. I think we're the four games that were not derivative at all. Nothing anything. after Metal Gear Solid, Solid on the PS1? Maybe Tony Hawk? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's 1999, I think. But then we were getting into Dreamcast, and we were waiting for PS2, and we were, you know, PS1, what people don't think about with PS1 is it had a very short, brief period of time. I mean, we're talking in the fall, or in the winter of 2018 right now, recording this, if you look at PS4, PS4 came out in 2013. That was a five-year window. PS4 would be done right now if it was on PS1's life cycle, but it wasn't. You That's know? a great way of looking at it, actually. You're right. So 
the PS1 wow. life cycle was very short. It's very brief when you compare it to PS3, when you compare it to PS2, when you compare it to PS4. And I think that's another reason why there's a lot of great games on there. Like, I know that people were mind blown by the Need for Speed games. They were mind blown by Gran Turismo and some of the, you know, Crash and Spyro and some of these games, obviously. But yeah. Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider, definitely. But yeah, game. those were the four for me. But Metal Gear Solid, I think, was just it was a step above for a lot of different reasons. And it remained that way and really cemented in my heart. You know, it's interesting for me because it. Medal of Honor is actually another one on PS1, although I, I wouldn't say that it was like a mind blowing game for me, but it, it opened me up to first person shooters like I didn't play them until that me game too. I think that was the first ones for me, too. And I think for third person shooters and more tactical, you know, there were stealth games like Tenchu and stuff like that, that emphasized non aggression, which was cool. But Metal Gear did it in a way that I think was a little more special. Yeah. I think that's well said. You know, I could think. Of, yeah. Final Fantasy seven was another big one for me. I really liked Parasite Eve. Too, but it was it's not in the same ilk. Yeah, Parasite Eve is I remember you and I played that together. I really, really like that game a lot. Patrick Molloy wrote in and said, I'm not particularly fond of the Metal Gear Solid games. However, Yoji Shinkawa's art and character designs for the series are always a delight. I'd like to hear Dagan's opinion on the box, the art, and the look of the franchise. So what do you make of all of that? We were talking a little bit about him earlier, but we didn't get yeah. into his designs at all. He has to me a very Amano like influence on the Metal Gear series. Like his art is just his art's actually somewhat similar, I think, in some ways to Amano's art. You it, could it, see that. There's a lot of flourish. Yeah. A very distinctive style. Yeah, a little What's exaggerated. What's really striking to me about the artwork is that does basically the character design and the mecha design, which is very rare in anime and manga. They they usually specialize. And his hand is seen through through you know that that's a through line and a consistency from game to game and the fact that he's he was along for the whole ride not only in the character design and the mecha design but just the overall design of the game is very slick everything from the box art like patrick said to the game over screen to the look of the codec the art direction is very sophisticated and even holds up the art direction holds up and graphically it doesn't hold up you know the polygons fall apart it's very, you know, it harkens back to that mid to late 90s 3D aesthetic when it was, you know, that the the look and the feel and that model was very new and they were still exploring it. But just the overall design, the overall aesthetic is very striking in this game, both in paper form and in the case and all the way through all the menus. Everything is very, very slick and was a lot slicker. Now we have very now. Games are very slick now today. When you look at it in context to today's games, it doesn't hold up as well. But if you look at it in that context of what else was available at that time, it was a lot, it was just a lot more slick, a lot more thought out, a lot more sophisticated. And, you know, those designs, those character designs and those mecha designs are just so memorable. And what I love about them also, besides being such wonderful designs and so memorable and the, you know, the scale and them, their look together as a group and how unique each one is and how they visually carry out the theme. You know, one's the shaman, one's the psychic, you know, one's the creepy psychic, one's the, has that cowboy vibe that they all have that visual through line to them, which is so neat, but also the look of the mech of Metal Gear Rex you know, spoiler alert, It's it looks very realistic. It's not, I love Mecha. I love Mech shows like, you know, Evangelion and Gundam and Zeo Rhymer and all these like crazy cool tech, you know, Dangayo, all these legendary Mech designs. I love it. But the Mech design in this 
looks very realistic. It's sort of this lumber, Rex is this sort of lumbering, clanking. It's, it's huge. It's intimidating. It's, you know, it looks absolutely horrifying, but it's realistic. And I love that about it. You know, it has the lights in the front. It looks practical, which makes it scarier, you know. Yeah, it's, you know, very cool. which is so cool. You can't, you couldn't have it without his designs. They, they really, they mean a lot. You know, I think the designs is, the designs are so memorable. I think they're my favorite boss characters, maybe in any game on PlayStation. I mean, you have Final Fantasy VII has Sephiroth, and he's a pretty cool boss character. But if we were looking at just the PlayStation, probably my favorite boss characters. You know, yeah, no, de- I mean, definitely, definitely, and I like the muted color palette too. There's not a lot of color in them. It's like it's beige, gray, black, which makes sense, right? Navy. It's in a Ala- remote Alaska yeah. on an archipelago. It's like perfect. You know, you couldn't have it too colorful and garish. But you know what's funny? It's, it ma- it manages to stay exciting and cartoony without the color palette. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't think about that. It manages to stay vibrant and sort of fun without using those colors. You know, which is really neat. Just think if they had like. All right, now you're fighting this these soldiers in a jeep, and everything was very run of the mill, and they were just realistic soldiers, and everything. You know, the fact that these guys are like these genetically enhanced dudes, and everybody's got a special power, and everybody's got this specialty, and there's this nice variety. That's that's design. That's 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 strength in design. That's thoughtful design. That's like that for a reason. It's yeah. not like Rambo where he's just fighting all these no name soldiers, and it's like. Totally different thing. Right. Well, that's what's cool about the whole structure, too, is that we have boss structures in games by design because that's like, you know, you fight harder and harder bosses and stuff. But actually, Mega Man and Castlevania, to an extent, and a few other games are the only ones that really gave bosses identities, like real identities. And this was really cool in this sense, too, because they had identity and then they had reason to exist in the story and they had weight. They were real people that had a real part to play in this this rogue coup, basically, that they were throwing with nuclear arms. And that's what I really loved about it as well. And the one guy we haven't talked about, Dig, that I want to throw to you is uh, Cyborg Ninja. Oh, man, so cool. Who's an amazing design. But what do you think of that character? I I loved how they... He's probably the campiest element of Metal Gear Solid. And he's the only, like, kind of splash of color. He has kind of, like, an electric blue and purple, you know... Good point. Violet suit, kind of. Yeah, it's sort of purplish. And so, yeah, what do you think of Cyborg Ninja? I love that fight, but also... Or the fights, I guess, and how he kind of saves you as well, but... yeah. But I also love that they had to throw in a guy with a katana, basically. You it's know, so this neat. Yeah. It's like the, it was the only element that was missing. And again, you think about that camp. This character doesn't really exist in this world very comfortably, but they kind of shoehorned them in and it, it just works. So f- it's fun. It's just fun. So the first time, if I'm not mistaken, Carl, it's Gray Fox, right? Yes. So the first time we see him is when he helps you he kind of comes to your aid during the revolver ocelot fight right yeah he and slices he cuts, yeah he cuts his hand slices, slices ocelot's hand off right hand off and during that battle and then later on you have to he confronts you and you have to battle him what's cool about that fight is he it's a little a suspension of disbelief going on here but he you can't use any weapons on him he blocks all of your guns all of your bullets with his sword so you have to go in and fight him hand to hand using stealth camo right Right. no and infra stealth camo and then infrared you're using your infrared goggles to see because he has stealth Stealth camo camo, right yeah you have to kind of like sneak up he has like the cybernetic exosuit Mm. and he's got like that single eye it's just very cool i never realized i found out a few weeks ago totally unrelated to my research i was just listening to a toy show on youtube that i enjoy and mcfarlane toys made a line 
of Metal Gear Solid toys. I didn't know about. Yeah, yeah, I remember them in the late you 90s. I think I them? had one of them. I think I had, like, my friend Cody had a few of them because he was a big fan of the game. I think I had, like, someone random, like Vulcan Raven or something like that. Oh, he yeah. looks so cool. I saw him, too. Yeah. He looks amazing. Yeah, he was big with the, yeah, with the huge gun. He's got gun. the huge yeah. gun and the huge bat. Yeah, right. I remember those toys very well. I mean, those were some of the earliest toys that you would find at EB or GameStop before they started only carrying those things. Right, yeah, I guess so. That would be later. that era. Sure, yeah. yeah. So I saw his figure, and I was really jazzed by it. But are they? I, did you look up look him up on eBay to see how much No, I didn't. I didn't. And the guy who I was talking to was like a flea market find. He just goes to toy collector flea markets and he gets all his stuff. So I wonder, I wonder how much he was. I wonder how much he's going for. But that whole cybernetic ninja thing, I mean, how can you go wrong? It's a cyber ninja. I mean, that our fascination with like modern ninjas started with Snake Eyes, you know, and it never really stopped. Right. So he was like a carryover from Snake Eyes and all those cool, you know, and yeah, Storm they, Shadow. They just are so cool. Yeah, and Storm Shadow. So too. cool. Yeah, it, it is. There's just something about katanas and ninja stars. And like I was telling you, you know, I don't know when we were talking about it. Maybe it was in the G.I. Joe episode about how, like, it's just a total distortion of what ninjas really were, you know? Absolutely. Like, no one, ninjas were, like, really dirty fighters and, like, did really fucked Fought up things. from a distance. Yeah, and, like, they were, yeah, they were looked at as cowardly by the samurai and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's interesting that we kind of, like, they retconned them a little bit. Right, totally. Oh, totally. A hundred percent. And it's so cool to mix that. We talked about this, but we, it's so cool to mix that sort of old school medieval, you know, sword element with technology and guns and stuff like that. It's just neat. You know, and again, that whole thing, I, I would I would argue that whole thing started with Snake Eyes. He's got like an Uzi and a, and a katana. Like, you know, that's, it's the best of both worlds, you know? Yeah. And a dog. And a, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't remember the dog's wolf, name. Wolf, Timber. Timber, right. There you go. Was he a wolf? No, he was a wolf, I think. You're absolutely right. Then Snake finds out that Gray Fox was his old partner. Is that how it plays out in the... I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's a lot of intrigue and mystery with like with Cyborg Ninja that you just don't really realize. Like you don't, you almost take his presence for granted, but he's obviously this kind of this. I don't want to say double agent, but this guy that's kind of got this gray provenance. Yeah, you don't really know if he's helping you or hurting you. At yeah, all. he's and he's moving in and out of the story. He's mm. like pulling the whole Gandalf thing. It's like, where is this guy going? Is he going to come back? Is he going to be dangerous this time? Like, you know, <laughs> is he going to help me this time? So it gives you that again that tension. You know, so so good. Josh wrote in and said, how do you feel about the atmosphere? There is something that the music in combination with the somber tone that has me feeling uneasy to this day in a lot of sections of the game. Do you agree? How would you describe the atmosphere that the game provides? I wanted to use this question, Dagan, because you and I, I, well, I had mentioned to you that I have this, it's not like a fantasy, really. It's just like the things that I'm interested in, in the minutia of a role-playing game, for instance, and this is not a role-playing game, but just as an example, I love the idea of these characters having to like set up camp and like eat sleep figure it out like actually red dead redemption 2 does a really nice job of that as you'll find out when you play it. you haven't played it yet but no. where they have like a camp and you have to eat and you have to kind of like take care of yourself and all that kind of stuff and the game kind of adapts to you in that way even though a lot of games don't adapt to you in that way it's like still something you kind of think about them doing when they go to an inn like in a final fantasy game you almost assume that you're not seeing every moment of their ex- experience you're seeing them in moments of importance so right. like when they walk into an inn or a tavern you assume that they're dicking around there and eating and drinking but you're only seeing the conversations it's like when you're getting random encounters you assume that they've been traveling for a day and then they fight an enemy and maybe, you know, that kind of stuff. And what I loved about Shadow Moses is it has that similar, it gives me that similar feeling of awe, the atmosphere there where it's a contained place. You're slinking around. No one's supposed to know you're there. They're slowly figuring out that something's wrong. And there's something exciting about that to me. Apart from the music, apart from any of that stuff, 
there's something intriguing about like slinking around. I mean, it almost makes you want to play it out. Like it, it, it invokes that childlike need in you. Like you used to play war, you used to play, you know, play in the pool or you used to try to act things out that you would see in movies. Like I almost want to play Metal Gear like that. I would almost want to just go into a warehouse and try to sneak around. Like they have escape rooms and stuff like that. It would be fun to like. Yeah. Have you done that? No, I haven't. But it would be fun to have a similar situation with paintball or something like that where you're like trying to get through without getting caught like that's the campaign yeah like that would be cool yeah that would be a lot of fun with paintball actually yeah Yeah. no absolutely the atmosphere and you know it it does it has that resonance of like it's it's dank and cold and uncomfortable and dangerous and it's a remote place so you don't know what you're going to be up against you know you know from enemy soldiers to whatever you know native wildlife is there that could be dangerous but at the same time it feels inviting it feels like you want to tackle it and i think a part of that atmosphere in this game we touched on this a little bit earlier too but you know seeing your breath in the cold seeing the scampering rats as you're crawling on the ground the footprints in the snow that sort of dissipate you know, as you move away, you know, you can make in the footprints and then they sort of dissipate. And the, the fact that the guards, some of the guards could see the footprints, mm-hmm. you know, the puddles of water that you look through that sort of rip that you walk through and they sort of ripple. And then how you drag the water out that actually fades as you get further from the puddle. Just that whole environment, the environment feels it, it's so immersive. All those little details make it so immersive. It wasn't even games that came after. Like I was looking, I researched this a little bit. I think the did the first Siphon Filter game come after Metal Gear Solid? If it did, it was close to the they same. They were close, time. yeah. They weren't even close no, in detail the, no, or immersiveness. Oh no, no, you and know? they and they banged. You know, they were banging out Siphon Filter games really quickly too. At Sony Bend, we're waiting for their new game in Days Gone, but it's hard for me to know how influential Metal Gear really was on Siphon Filter. A lot of people make those comparisons. I made, I drew that comparison earlier when they were a little too close. To have really truly been an, an influence for one another, yeah, I would say that later Siphon Filter games three and the ones on PS2 maybe were more overtly influenced by Metal Gear. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. As time went on, for sure. Jason Bola wrote in and said, "Were you excited for the Solid series having played the previous games?" And again, just to be clear, we only played one other game because we only had one other game available to us, not including Snake's Revenge. What expectations did you have going into it? And how far off were you from the mind-bending brilliance of Kojima? I don't want to focus on that last part. I want to focus on the first part. Was it relevant to you at all that you had played the original Metal Gear? Was that a game that stuck with you? Definitely. Oh, absolutely. Because Metal Gear on the Famicom on Nintendo for us was so different than anything else. You know, like we talked about it a little bit. Think about this, Kyle. We played games on the Nintendo like Contra, Commando, Russian Attack, Akari Warriors. These are all, you know, Rambo, whatever. All those games, they were games about being a soldier, but it was all like attack, 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 get through, break through the enemy lines, get to the end, get to the boss, get to the next level. This was Metal Gear. When Metal Gear came out, it was the complete opposite thing. It was so striking. I don't even think I really loved Metal Gear at first. I didn't, I thought it was a little bit, you know, as history shows us, like the game was a little broken, but also the fact of it that it was it was kind of slow it was kind of annoying you had to move so sometimes you just weren't in the mood to play that that way and some that could speak to my age at the time i was playing that game also but we knew how innovative it was it was so different than anything else that came before and i was thinking about this too kyle you might be able to think of something it might be the first time there was a, such a generational gap in a franchise of games that that was part of the allure allure of it and the fact of making us want to 
you know, see what this was all about. There's like, all right, this was this NES game. Now, all these generational gaps later or a few generational gaps later, you're going to bring a Metal Gear game out on PlayStation? What's this going to be like? It used to be like this. I know it's not going to be like this anymore on the Nintendo. So what's it going to be like? That's the first time I could think of that games didn't keep spanning the gap. Like you have Castlevania came out on NES. There was games on Genesis. There was games on Super Nintendo. There was games on N64. You and know, Game it Boy kept and all that. Yeah, game yeah. Boy. Yeah. But with Metal Gear, was like that. there was like a stutter in between. So it was like, how is how are they going to translate this thing to this thing, this cartridge to this disc? That was part of the, I remember thinking that, like, oh, that's interesting, you know, because, and I think any, any, any hardcore NES guy at that time or kid would have remembered Metal Gear was a, it was a popular game, you know, relatively popular. So, but what, what about you? Because you were even a lot younger than I was. Yeah, I remember Metal Gear, you know, I didn't beat it until I was older and the original one, and I remember it being annoying, you know, so I was confused in the same way because, again, it's just so important to remember that we just did not have the context of the real Metal Gear 2. We just didn't. And this game takes from that and kind of continues it in a way. So we again, it's just so funny. We didn't get the context of that game until eight years after Metal Gear Solid came out in the West. And that was a, wow. a that was a confusing sort of situation, but it was also not very relevant. I I assumed and I think that they made a really smart move not calling it Metal Gear 3, which is, again, what they wanted to call it originally. And I think they probably would have changed the name for the West, even if they did that because of the gap there that we just didn't have that game. But calling it Metal Gear Solid, I think, initially signaled and immediately signaled to me that it's just it's just a new series. And it, it actually isn't a new series. It's just it's actually the same series with the same characters. So it was a little confusing, but I didn't think too deeply about it. I don't think at the time when I was 14. Yeah, you were just you were just going along. We didn't talk about out. Liquid. Do you want to talk about him at all? Sure. Yeah. T- talk to me a little bit about Liquid Snake, because I think he's an interesting antagonist. Devious, obviously, but also there's something really tantalizing about him and his interactions with Snake and his interactions with everyone else. There's some there's some sort of presence to him, I think, that most other characters in the game actually don't have to his extent. That's true. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about Liquid Snake. So Liquid Snake is the the boss, the big boss, the head of this sort of rogue terrorist group. Actually, the first time you confront liquid is when he's in the hindy gunship right when he's in the helicopter is that the first battle you have that's the i think the first time yeah and and that adds extra intrigue to the story because it insinuates that the russians are somehow involved in this plot right exactly and so that's the first time you have you have any you you're you're aware of him because you get briefed on all the big bads on your way in to your mission but you're so you're aware of him but but what happens is later on again spoiler alert he presents himself as one of your allies, right? He uh, on the codec, he he's sort of coming at you. There's different characters. We'll talk about the codec characters. We have to get to them, but there's one guy on the codec that you could dial up a frequency, and he's called Master Miller, and he's a former drill instructor and survival coach. That turns out that it was actually Liquid Snake trying to sort of mislead you all along. And that's one of the big reveals at the end of the game or towards the end of the game. And he, it turns out that Liquid is your twin brother and that you're both clones. And that's the big, like the big, big reveal at the end of the game, towards the end of the game, is that you find out you're a clone and that Liquid is your counterpart or your brother, in quotes, and that they were both, correct correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, they were both clones of... Big boss. Right. The, the, I think it has to do with the, what, what are they called? The laissez-faire terrible. Yeah, les enfants terribles. 
<laughs> so that and that was the whole thing. And he's like, he looks like Snake's opposite, like Snake's very rugged. You know, Snake, which I never knew before this research, and this is part of the reason I love doing this show, because I find out new stuff all the time, and it's so neat. He, I never knew Snake was designed to be like a hybrid of Christopher Walken and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like, I never knew that. No, I didn't know that. I would have never got that. They wanted, like, Van Damme's physique and Christopher Walken's, like, countenance, like his face. And Liquid looks like a long hair, a long blonde-haired version of Snake a little bit, you know? You can kind of see it, they're brothers, actually. Right. Should have saw it coming all along. I know. How did you not know? <laughs> Liquid. And then your last, of course, you know, I don't know if you want to go there yet, but yeah, our, your last battle with Liquid is he's piloting. He's sitting in the cockpit of the giant Metal Gear Rex Walker, who, you know, which is the big nuclear capable device. And he's attacking you in this giant thing, and you're trying to figure out how to how to get get at him basically and that's when we see gray fox again enter the fight and he comes in to assist snake in his final battle with uh with liquid and the giant walker and what am i forgetting am i forgetting anything important about that call i don't think so i mean i don't think there's anything important or unimportant we can talk about whatever we want i don't think that there's anything uh we need to touch on you know you had brought up the codec yeah which i think is another thing that we should touch on because again the codex actually in the original metal gear but it's not as important. Some people, I think, look at the codec in Metal Gear Solid as kind of lazy because it's a way to force exposition into the game. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that this isn't a game for those that don't want exposition. I think, that, like Dagan was saying, it's a game that needs to be played more deliberately. It's just not for you if you want action and stuff like that. But you do meet a number of characters, both on the codec and, and helpful characters like Hal Emmerich in the environment, Mei Ling, Roy Campbell to an extent, Naomi Hunter. So talk to me a little bit about some of these characters that you meet and what you might think of them. Yeah, so you and you meet the, you know, you're introduced to certain characters in order. Of course, it starts with the colonel who's briefing you on his mission. And he's your former commanding officer. And now, you know, with Snake out of retirement, sort of leading you and supporting you on this mission. And then there's Mei Ling, who is actually the person, if I'm not mistaken, Kyle, that invented the tech, the codec tech. And she's the one, no, I'm sorry, she invented the Soliton radar. And she's the kind of the one that walks you through that tech. She invented that, and she's in charge of mission data, and she saves the game for you. And also, we should mention, the codec is also not only a brilliant device for exposition and for helping to propel a very complicated story, actually, very deep story, but also a very useful device in learning how to play the game, especially early on. The characters sort of instruct you on what buttons to press and how to do certain things, which is a little off-putting at first. But actually, if you just examine it for what it is, it's actually a pretty brilliant way to integrate learning gameplay mechanics into the game. Um, it never really bothered me. I know it bothers a lot of people, but it never really bugged me. It never really pulled me out of the... St- I mean, I think some people argue that it pulls them out of the story and stuff, but... Yeah, because it's like, you know, press square. Press square, yeah. press select, yeah. you know. <laughs> but it's... But it's... I think it was actually pretty cool they did it that way. And then there's Naomi Hunter, who's the... He, she's in charge of helping out Snake with any kind of medical advice. Tasha Romaneko who provides weapons and item tips to Snake, teaches you how to use weapons, how to, you know, leverage items and all that kind of stuff. Master Miller, who we already explained, is actually Liquid Snake, the big boss kind of in hiding. And, oh, well, we got to talk about him. Dr. Hal Emmerich, a.k.a. Otacon, 
who is the scientist who is kind of the lead developer of Metal Gear Rex. And he's sort of, he's someone who's sort of becomes Snake's companion in the game. And someone who is, in a way, a tragic character, but also a comedic character because he's a huge, you know, he's a huge otaku. He's a huge anime and manga fan. And he, his sort of reference point is always to talk about anime and manga and even sort of alludes to the fact of like, he was inspired, the, the design of Metal Gear Rex was inspired by anime, you know, which is actually quite, quite comedic. And he's also a great character for some, to add some levity into the game. You know, which is a lot of fun. And of course, Meryl, Meryl Silverberg, who is an agent, another a fellow agent that Snake meets early on in, in his mission, who's sort of side by side with him there, comes in and out of the game, I think, initially, but is somebody who's very human character, very similar to Snake in the fact of as the story progresses, you sort of see Snake's human side, his inner turmoil, his sort of pull up between what's right and wrong, sort of his pull between his duties as, as a soldier and his feelings as a human being. And Meryl's sort of his female counterpart in that. You can see very early on, she's reluctant to engage the enemies. And she actually turns out to be Colonel Campbell's niece, who's a rookie soldier who decide, who was at the base, who was at Shadow Moses, who decided not to join the revolt. So she's kind of stuck there in that position. And the codec... Her codec frequency, I didn't remember this, is actually on the back of the game case. Yeah, it is. It is. And actually, it's funny that you say that because we did get a question about this. Okay. Ryan Hart wrote into us and said, for Metal Gear Solid, how many kids' dreams were ruined when they couldn't find Meryl's codec on the back of the CD case because they rented the game from the local video oh, game store? Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's a good point. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And that's another clever thing, you know? And actually, <laughs> at a time before, you could, you could burn... PS1 discs and make them play with the, you know, we've talked about that, but this was really in a pre CDR moment as well. So people weren't really pirating games at this time, you know, especially modern current gen games. So it was kind of a clever way. It's like almost like what they did later on with season passes and stuff where they were trying to make people buy new games and stuff like that. It's kind of a clever way to make you have to have the game's case. Absolutely. I mean, who could think of a better way than that? Very, really smart stuff. Very cool. And another, and another smart design choice. I think it's really cool. You know, and it's not the first game to do that. I think like Star Tropics had a weird thing like that where you had it to like did. drop. Did you have to drop something in water or something? The letter like that? from the uncle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You had to actually drop, literally like drop it in water, yeah. I think. And I think to my understanding, I was never a big PC gamer. I kind of I, I, I didn't have a computer growing up at all in the 80s. But I, I think a lot of PC games did this where the, the instruction booklets, different, you know, sort of pieces of paper and literature that came with the games was, was were more integral into the game, whether there was a map or a code or Oh yeah, because like it was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly easy to pirate PC games. Well there you go. Exactly. On disc, right? Yeah, it was on like it was a jo- it was a joke. I mean I remember that. You know, and it was a complete joke. There was nothing stopping you from copying everything. Which you know? is so funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Like, oh, you remember remember the Apple II five and a quarter inch floppy disk drives? The ones that were on top of each other. You yeah. can literally just copy one to the other. Just put a, a, a blank in and just and just take the, the magnetic so data. Funny. You know, so yeah, no, that was a really common thing. You're absolutely right. In the 80s and even into the 90s, where you needed a password or a code, like an Ultima, I think had yeah. some of those. Yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah that. exactly. So, yeah, yeah. But again, not my scene, so I don't want to talk about it too authoritatively. Well, Dagan. Before we go, I think we have to touch upon, at least for a moment, the other version of the game. Yes. 
Joey Gonhalica wrote in and John Fazio had a similar question, but he said, hey, guys, what is your preferred version of Metal Gear Solid? And what he's talking about here is there is a sequel to the game, but there is also a new version of the original Metal Gear called Twin Snakes. And Twin Snakes was a GameCube exclusive. It came out in 2004 and it was by Silicon Knights. Now, Silicon Knights doesn't exist anymore. They were they went belly up, I think, in 2013 or 2014. But Dennis Dyack was the guy who was kind of the driving force behind Silicon Knights, which was a Canadian studio. And you probably know his name from a game on GameCube called Eternal Darkness, which was originally supposed to be an N64 game. And then it was supposed to be a GameCube launch game. And then it got delayed and it came out in 2002. He also did the game Too Human, which ended up being kind of a huge disappointment to a lot of people. And he's kind of just fallen off the face of the planet. But Silicon Knights made a basically a GameCube remake of the original Metal Gear Solid with the original voice cast redoing their their lines. And it was a little more playable and a little bit more modern. And I have it. I haven't played it in a long time since I was in college. I really do want to say that I think, you know, it was well received and I think it was well done. But I think it was so it's so sudden to get a remake. And it's kind of disappointing because I feel like we're not going to get one now, you know, or ever. Well, Konami is never going to give us one anyway. But you don't think you think it's just a closed door? I think I think, Metal, think I think that they're intent on avoiding Kojima's yeah, anything I, at all cost. Yeah, I think you're right. But or at least until there's a new guard there. But I don't want to disparage Twin Snakes because I think it's great. I, I don't think you've played Twin Snakes. I right? have not. No, we talked about that. I mean, it's been I think I last played Twin Snakes in probably 2005. It sounds so it's cool, though, years. in reading about it. Some of the some of the features that the game features over the original sound. It sounds like it's a little different of an experience. Not just graphically, but gameplay-wise. It seems like there's enough uh, difference in the gameplay that makes it something that stands out on its own. But I can't speak to it again because I didn't play it, but it sounds like it. Yeah, it's a cool game. I mean, I recommend it. it. I think it's not as accessible as Metal Gear Solid itself because of the PS Classic kind of stuff and the ability to kind of... I mean, you can, I guess, emulate GameCube games. I'm not encouraging you guys to emulate or do anything like that, but PS1 emulation is much more robust. You can obviously play Metal Gear Solid in different ways. So I recommend it if you have access to the original you know, version of the game, but... You know, I wouldn't count on there being much respect for it because it was on GameCube. It was kind of isolated there. GameCube only sold like, what, 25 million units. It's not like it, it was a game that proliferated. That's true. You Just know? due to the console. Sure. Absolutely. But as on wrote into us and said, with the massive success of this game, my question is, do we need a remake or remastered version to remind everyone how important this is? I wonder if Azan knows that it was already remade. But with that said, I do think that this game could use a remake, and I'm not a huge fan of remaking games. I think it's stupid. It's cool to like re-release games, put them in 16.9 if you can, maybe up-res the graphics or fix frame rates and fix little bugs and issues. But this game would be awesome to see a AAA $100 million budget Metal Gear Solid remake, I think would be fucking phenomenal. And it would be really cool to do that. I mean, if you wanted to dump money and resources into it, it would be very hard to do and very expensive. Activision made remade the Crash Bandicoot games from the ground up, all three of them, and they're making Crash Team Racing now. They remade from the ground up three Spyro games. Wouldn't it be cool for Konami to dump a bunch of money and resources into remaking Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid 2, and Metal Gear Solid 3 and give them the modern treatment and give them the respect they deserve? I think that that would be really cool. That would be cool. I have to agree with that 100%. And one of the very few examples of me, anyway, wanting a remake when I think that we should probably leave a lot of stuff alone Again, not so much two and three, but the original Metal Gear Solid is just kind of caught, like Dagan said, in that awkward polygonal phase where it just doesn't look good and it doesn't play right. You can play Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3 natively on PS3 and Vita because they re-released them there. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not the PS1, or there's not PS2 classics, rather. It's They're literally re-released in a collection. 
and they're still arcane archaic and weird you know i remember playing through metal gear solid 2 and being so excited to play it on vita and i'm like ah it's just like it just doesn't feel right you know yeah 10 years later would have done this game a lot of justice so what you're saying is absolutely valid yeah so i think that it's something worth considering and again i know that we had such a sudden remake with silicon knight's gamecube game but I feel like maybe maybe not this Konami, but maybe Konami in a little while. To be honest with you, with Castlevania on Netflix and the release of Castlevania Requiem on PlayStation 4, it's like I feel like Konami's starting to mess around a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they're going to be more amenable to this kind of stuff moving forward. Now, I don't think that they have it out for Ego like they have it out for Gojima. Right. But they did. They did have it out for Ego. They did. And, oh, yeah. And so they seem blood. to be warming up there. And I wonder if they're going to maybe warm up to doing a little giving Metal Gear a little love again, because Metal Gear Survive, I bought it for ten dollars on Amazon. I haven't even opened it. It's supposed to be terrible. And, you know, I wasn't fond of Metal Gear Solid 5. I wasn't fond of four either. So, no, you didn't like four. Right. So to me, I don't know. I, I think I think the time is right for there to be a remake. I think that's I think that's well said. Is there anything else you want to touch on, Dagan, before we wrap up? You know what? I think we have to. We should probably touch on the music a little bit. Sure. Just I love the fact that the music in the in the game is understated when it needs to be, and then it sort of rises to the surface during whatever emotional moment is happening in the game. I think that's. I think there's that's a sort of like a, you were t- saying earlier, like a sort of level designy type thing, a thing that could go over easily go overlooked, and that just the nuance to the sound design in this game is very well done. Not only the music, but the sound in general. And I love that fact that it's understated when it needs to be and it sort of rises to the surface during those emotional moments because the story in this game is so crucial and the characters and what they're going through, but you know, on both sides of the on both sides of the conflict. And the music really just really does complement that. Not in as an overly saturated way. It's 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 low key. It it's there it's there to help. You know, and I think that game, this game really does that expertly. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about and see what you thought about this, Kyle, of Solid Snake's voice performance, David Hayter playing Solid Snake, and how you feel about it. It's excellent. And obviously, he got kind of done wrong with, what was it, five? What didn't he voice that he was supposed to voice? I think it was five. Was it five? So and, he went all the way through four. Yeah. And I think that they just kind of like, cause I think it was a surprise to him that he wasn't doing something, but I think David Hayter's performance is, is masterful. It's and so good. It's dramatic and it's over the top and it's guttural. And it's all these things that again, works within the camp works within the confines of what metal gear is. It's not a serious thriller, right? It's something a little more than that. There's a cyborg ninja and a psych, a psychic running around. It's not, the same. So I like all the voice performances. I think are great. But David Hayter, I mean, he's really one of the first voice actors, if not the first voice actor that you knew his name. I mean, we know Nolan North now and we know Troy Baker and we know, you know, all of these people out there in the, you know, in the ether that do this stuff very masterfully. And I know them a lot of them personally and they're great people and they're and they're super talented. But David Hayter was really one of the first guys, you know, yeah. that really first did household it. name. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I love the gravelly texture to his voice. Yeah. I always it's funny as a kid remembering that just thinking like it almost had this like this Batman resonance for me of the way I feel about Christian Bale and Batman. Like it's it's obviously a beautifully done movie. His performance is good. It's just that freaking voice. Like it's taking me out of it. Like I remember feeling that as a kid, like if there was one weakness to Metal Gear it was like. Again, it was that thing of like interpreting it as cheesy, 
when it was really just being campy. And it's not David Hayter's voice. It's the dialogue. It's the written dialogue that's a little weird and a little, you know, a little off. But again, it's that campiness. And it's like you said, it's that fun. It's that levity. That's the brilliant. There, there was a whole level of brilliance, again, to this game that I wasn't appreciating as a kid, as brilliant as I thought it was and as much as I loved it. As an adult later on in my 30s and 40s could appreciate it for everything else that it brought to the table. And just it just compounded it for me even more so. And David Hayter's voice is a big part of that, you know, because his voice is so it's it's so special. But he's reading this dialogue. It almost has this like Phantom Menace-esque dialogue that's just like, oh, God, really? You're talking about this now? Like you're fighting this sniper right now. She's trying to kill you. You know, it's like has that whole thing. But that's what makes it fun. And yeah, so props out to David Hayter for that. And also, can we just say, first of all, before I forget to say this, Metal Gear is one of the best names for a video game ever. That's fucking amazing. Man. Definitely. I, I never Definitely. hear anyone say that. Like Metal Gear is the fucking coolest name ever. And Solid Snake is the best porn name ever. Oh, my God. It's like how so you, conspicuous. You did know? you ever again? It's that whole thing of being cheesy, but being cheesy on purpose. I always hate it. It's like they couldn't call him something cooler than that. Like Gray Fox sounds cool. Why couldn't he be Gray Fox? Right, right. Yeah, you know? great. Yeah. Or even Liquid Snake is a cool. Liquid is a cool, Snake is yeah. cool. But Solid Snake, really. But at least they didn't go for Gaseous Snake, which is your name. That's me. No, I'm Gaseous Snake. You're Gaseous Snake. Yeah. And that's think, because you I fart think that's a lot. It, but you know what I realized? What's that? That I flubbed. I forgot to do our, our new segment in the beginning of the show. Already I forgot. Well, we'll, we'll let's tack it on in the end. Who cares? All right. Let's do it at the end. What the fuck do I care? Hit me. Are you done? Do you. Do, do you talk about everything you need to talk well, about? Well, I wanted to acknowledge I wanted to acknowledge the few people that we didn't get to. Please take your time. So, you know, as I told you, or you know, if you guys listen to a lot of you guys listen to this sequentially, we have a listenership of like 10, 11, 12, 13,000 people that listen, you know, the episodes of the show, and we really appreciate every one of you. And thank you for that. And I know that a lot of you guys listen and you guys, a lot of you guys support. And as I said on the Christmas memories or holiday memories episode, we're getting so many submissions now that I have to actually start calling through them while you know, in the quaint waves one and two, for instance, we could read. We we were in want even of submissions. So Absolutely. we appreciate you. Absolutely. And we hope you can continue to submit them through wave seven and beyond. But I wanted to acknowledge Dorian Brown, who wrote in about Psycho Mantis. I wanted to uh, acknowledge Brandon Hardman, who wrote in about who should play Solid Snake in a movie. The answer, of course, is Robert De Niro. Joshua McGee and David Thomas wrote in about various moments <laughs> that they were excited about. Richard Duffalo wrote in about bonding with his dad over the game. Austin Powell wrote in about how he had a tattoo of the game. Which wow. is pretty cool. And uh, John Cacciarelli, I, I I think I'm saying your name right. I, I always for, I forget to put the little thing you sent me. Uh, he wrote in about Sniper Wolf. So I wanted to acknowledge all of you. He had a tattoo or he has a tattoo? He said he has a tattoo. Oh, he has, oh, has one. Has. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe the foxhound symbol? He has. I have a tattoo of Snake and Gray Fox on my arm. Oh, the actual. It's not exactly what his shit's about, but I wanted to acknowledge that. Because the foxhound cool. logo is fucking awesome. Yeah, it is. That is cool. So I wanted to acknowledge you guys and thank you for submitting. And remember, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early access to the show and also the ability to submit these questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. So thank you for that. Now, Dagan, you I kick it over to best. you. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're going to do our new segment, you guys. It is called Truth or Dare, but Truth. <laughs> and it's Truth or Dare without the dare, basically. And I'm going to ask Colin a question. You know, not, they're not they're not hardballs. Right, okay. They're maybe split finger fastballs. No, they're like curveballs. Curveballs, okay. Yeah, so a little not, they're, they're, yeah, Split finger fastball is pretty hard. Yeah, it's not definitely not. Yeah, no, definitely not. Those can go like 100 miles. <laughs> it's a knuckleball. Okay, oh, okay. So we're Tim Wakefield 50 mile per hour <laughs> oh, knuckleball. Yeah, we don't know exactly. if it's going to go wild or strike me out. Okay, good. Very good. 
Does that sound all right? That sounds perfect. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to ask you a question. Let's see. Which one do I want to choose today, Kyle? I'm going to say, hmm. Okay. Let me see about this one. Did you ever steal anything as a kid before the age of 14? Yes. Okay. Talk talk to me about that. I stole, and it's weird because I don't even like candy. I stole one of those little smarty wrap things that are probably yeah, like yeah. 10 cents each. Yeah. I stole one of those from Finest when I was like probably seven or eight. Wow. And that, and you remember that? Yeah. I remember it because I was so, I felt so guilty about it. It's the only thing I've ever stolen in my life. Did you eat it? No. <laughs> I don't even like it. I don't know why I stole it. That's amazing. I don't even like them. From Finest? From Finest, which was an old supermarket chain in Long Island. Were you with mom and dad? I was with mom, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I remember it clear as day. I remember where it was. Like, you'd walk into Finest's front door. There was like a produce section and there was like, they always had these displays and there was just like, well, I just took it. Because it was like one of those things, like, you know, like how they'd have like walnuts or something and like they were just dumped into this box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like that with like the little smarty things and I just took one and put it in my pocket. All right. I don't even know if I count that as stealing. I mean, that's that's the most I've ever stolen. Wow. Very virtuous. That was the beginning of the a dark path for you. I know. A fateful a day. A drug-addled dark path. <laughs> what about you? Did you, have you ever stolen it? You, you know what? It? I did. One time, well, I stole an X-Wing cockpit from a, yeah, my yeah. best friend. We have to We have to tell him. I, I'm not going to tell him. He might listen to the show. <laughs> I mean, that, did we tell that story? We brought it up on three yeah, separate okay. uh, I, podcasts so far. Okay. Yeah, so that's for a, you guys I that don't know, I, I, stole, I stole my friend's, you know, from his toy X-Wing, I stole his cockpit canopy that clear piece of plastic cockpit canopy from his toy X-Wing to put on my X-Wing when we were playing. The only time we ever played with our Star Wars toys or probably any toys outside in a log pile, like in the backyard. I yeah, because he was really like, really quite exact. He was, he was fastidious or whatever. They, whatever very, they, very fastidious about his fastidious, toys. That's and it. so was I. Very much so. Like it wasn't, that was the only time we ever did that. And yeah, it just felt so bad about it ever since, but not bad enough to give it back. I know, and you would like pray, fact, right, at night to Jesus it. about it? Yeah, in my prayers at night, I would ask God to forgive me for years. Just, why I should just, just give, give it, it back? back. It's really Because it's like, I didn't want my X-Wing without a canopy. It reminds, me, it reminds me of when you buried the tape. It's like, Kyle, do you want your X-Wing to be a convertible? <laughs> no, no. All right, so I prayed, but I, want, I didn't give it back. That's probably like now like six feet under the ground or six inches under the ground in like The Medford. weirdest thing is, it was one of those things. Did you ever have this ever happen to you? We were playing outside. My ex-wing canopy was there. Then it was literally gone. Oh, yeah. That's how it was that. nowhere. Yeah. How does that happen? I don't know. It, if yeah, it and, fell, and, I would have found it. And the thing is, is it, it is somewhere. That was the thing is that it is somewhere right now. It is somewhere. I don't know. Unless someone found it and threw it out. It just got, you know how things slowly get buried. Under, it's like You don't think it could have been a supernatural thing? I don't know. Maybe. I, if, if you were playing in a wood pile or something and the wood wasn't moved for years and someone in 1997 found it probably or something like that. Oh, yeah. my God. I hope they give it back. I hope they give it to Tommy. You got his tell. X-wing's missing a canopy. You got to so. tell him. How couldn't you? <laughs> and I stole. I do remember. I stole like a container. You know those little containers, those little breakfast containers, like Tropicana orange juice, yeah, yeah. single little boxes. I stole one of those from a deli once. From Jim's? No, it okay, was a good. weird deli that I never went to very often. It was like up in Yapank. I guess I was in junior high school. I don't even know what possessed me to do it. I don't know if my friends were goading me. It was like Adam, my friend Adam, and his cousins. That was the only, and that was the only time. And I, like you, felt very bad about it. Maybe I prayed about it every night <laughs> for years, for years, but I never gave it back. But didn't feel bad enough to uh, you buried, still buried that tape in the backyard that you. I don't know. 
that was still the weirdest. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, still the weirdest Francis thing. Francis Ford Coppola's, Coppola's Dracula. Yeah, that was the weirdest thing. That was the weirdest thing I've ever done. I'm still dead serious that we should just go talk to who owns that house and just go be- dig it up. Like, wouldn't <laughs> well, that be funny to just tape that? But you remember where it is, right? You, re- you said you remember where it is. I remember exactly where it is. Okay, so we can go. D- it's. I guarantee you still there and we can just go dig it up. You think so? I think so. If we just go knock on their door and tell them we used to live there, we pay them maybe a little money. Give them a little bit. You know, give them a little kickback. Yeah. And tell them we just want to go in the backyard for 10 minutes. We're going to dig up this shit. We'll put it back. Grease their palms from it. Oh, you know what, though? It might be grass. We have to film it. That's what I'm saying. We we would film film it it. for knockback. Oh, definitely. That's what I'm saying. We would absolutely film it. All right. The one thing I'm, I'm concerned in. about back there is that dad never planted grass back there. It was just like woods and it was so shaded that nothing would grow there. Right. I have an imagination that they might have a nice lawn back there now that we would have to dig up. Mm. All right. So I'm going to I like your plan. A. I think plan B is just go back there and dig it up without permission. I've thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm not going to say that I haven't that the thought hadn't crossed my mind because it has. We can. It would wait be a weird thing to be arrested for. What just are you guys doing? here? We're trying to dig up this Francis Ford Coppola tape that we buried here in 1993. Just go to the house. We'll both have a shovel. We'll just wait for them to leave. They'll see us. What are these guys, weird guys doing with the shovel? We'll go back there. They saw us with the shovels. What do they think we were We still do? know people in that neighborhood. We can just ask them, like, do you know? It's Now it's getting creepy because it, it's like it, we're casing the fucking house. It's like, do you know Do you know when they're going? Are they going away or something? Because then we can just safely go back there and, and get it. <laughs> no, we're not going to do. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to break Maybe it. Maybe go for a swim over there, the too. That oh. was our house. Our names are written in the this rafters of the attic. old apartment. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Dig, we have one more game to play. The lightning round. We're, lightning we're timing round. now. Dagan has, for some reason, wants to time it with an hourglass. These What's are the days called? of our lives. The lightning round of doom. Of doom. I'm holding up my hourglass. All right. I think it's a minute. Hit me, sorry. It's from a board game, a, kid's, a child's board game. It's orange. Okay. This is a lightning round of doom. Okay. From Metal Gear. All right. Metal Gear Solid. Okay. Tactical espionage action, Metal Gear Solid. Here we go. Stealth or attack? Stealth. Meryl or Mei Ling? Meryl. Kojima or Miyamoto? Miyamoto. Konami or Capcom? Capcom. Rations or cigarettes? Cigarettes, just because they're useless. Rations or weed cigarettes? Weed cigarettes. (laughs) Grenades or shaft grenades? Chaff grenades. Chaff grenades. I like chaff grenades. That's what taught me what that was, by the way. I never knew what that was. Is that a real thing? Yeah. They, they, it's, it's, well, I'll tell you. They later. take it. Okay. All right. Solid Snake or John Rambo? Solid Snake. Do you think love can bloom even on a battlefield? Yes. You got it. You won. Thank you. I appreciate that. Look, at I got all the right answers too. Yeah. So I learned what that is. Chaff is, I think I'm saying it right, but I don't know if it's used in like personnel on personnel combat, but planes shoot chaff out to disrupt radar locking oh okay that's yeah. cool that's what that really is that's right? super cool yeah like it shoots a bunch of metal you know or whatever that like it and it it, ca- it gives the thing a bunch of targets so and, oh, and, and so, sends it off and oh, sends. that's and really sends interesting yeah. what i never heard of that that's really it, they're like i think literally literally metal ribbons that's fascinating i think so yeah that's super i'll cool. read more about it and i'll delete this if i'm wrong <laughs> so no one will ever hear it Dagan, I appreciate you. I hope you had a fun time talking about super fun. Metal Gear Solid. Great Loved time. It. Great game. Highly recommended. Lots of different ways for you guys to go play it. I hope and encourage you to, to do that. I know a lot of you guys are out there are Metal Gear fans and you're going to eat this episode up. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for your love, kindness, support. 
and consideration. Remember, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins and follow us on social media. If you listen to us on free feeds, which thousands of you do, please leave us nice reviews on iTunes, etc. It really does help us out and it helps us find a new audience. We'll see you next time for more knockback. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Morgan Ashley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanicos, Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gagian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa Al Raisi, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julius, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kitredge, Christian Larson, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lou and Ray. Loper, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Matthew Plaster, Lawrence F. Prokop, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Atenogenis Rojas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholes, Christopher Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, John Tambanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Mike Wayant, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Supershot ST, Ethan, Throw7, Infinite, Barrick, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Titus Rex, Donk2015, Gavin, and Random Guy Radio.